audio from Emmanuel Church in Birmingham, Alabama. For more resources like this one, go to EmmanuelBirmingham.com. The text this morning is 1 Samuel 2, 1 through 10. Hannah's prayer. And Hannah prayed and said, My my heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The the bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who are full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who are hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. The word of the Lord. Have a good morning, church. It's good to see you. Uh, It's good to see you. I know there's a lot of uh, sickness going around right now, so I'm glad you're here and healthy and I want to pray for all those that are, sorry, I was at the bottom of my notes here. I pray for all those um, that are not here, that they recover quickly. Sickness has gone through our house in some form or fashion, I feel like, for the last three months. So, um, but we're here. Um, Today's a good example of why I encourage you, if you can, to read ahead. Uh, Read along with us as we're going through 1 and 2 Samuel. Each week in the weekly newsletter, it'll have the portion of, text that we're going to be covering the coming week, um, because we did read verses 1 through 10, um, but we are going to be covering the whole chapter of chapter 2. So there's going to be chapters throughout this time that we're just not going to be able to read in their entirety. And so I encourage you to read on your own. Prepare yourself as you come in to worship each week, um, today being a great example of that. I do want to say thank you to uh, Mark and Cody and Jason for their service this past Ash Wednesday um, to our church. It was, a, it was just a beautiful time um, for those that were able to take part um, in our Ash Wednesday service. Uh, it's just a good start, I think, to this Lent season for us. And if you missed it, um, there'll be another Ash Wednesday next year. So uh, hopefully you can join us then. Well, last week we uh, took our first glance at 1 Samuel chapter 1 and saw our first prophet we discovered in Samuel, even more particularly his mother Hannah. If you missed last week, I encourage you to go back and listen to that sermon. Um, But we were able to see embodied in Hannah uh, that God truly does oppose the proud and give grace to the humble. Um, That he provides for this barren, humble, faithful woman with a son, Samuel. And when we left last week, the end of chapter 1, we saw Hannah fulfilling her vow to the Lord. 
She had made this vow that if God would provide her a son, she would give him back to God in service to God for all of his days. And so Hannah fulfills her vow and she drops him off the temple with with Eli to be mentored and serve alongside him and his sons, Hophni and Phinehas. So here we are this week, right after this momentous event in Hannah's life. And I wonder if you've had time to think about chapter one this week, uh, I wonder what you would be feeling, parents, if this was you and her situation. If you had just dropped off your only child, two or three years old, to be mentored and cared for by someone you barely know, someone who isn't even related to you by blood. You dropped him off in Shiloh, which is about 35 miles from where you live in Rama, which is not an easy car ride back in the day. Knowing that in dropping off your only son, you're literally entrusting your entire future back into the hands of the Lord. I mean, what would be going through your mind if you're doing that? Would you be confused? Would you be angry? Would you be wondering why the Lord didn't stop you like he stopped Abraham, his hand from coming down on his son Isaac? Why didn't change his mind, so to speak, affirm your faith again like Abraham and say, hey, I've seen that you love me more than this one and stop you from dropping off your son? Would you have dropped him off at all? I mean, would you have fulfilled your vow? Now, would you be in Shiloh with a baby, handing him off to somebody you don't know? You've tried to justify keeping your son. Well, surely God wasn't serious about me dropping off my only son. I mean, it was a vow I made in desperation and in haste. He'll understand if I keep him, if I go back on my word. I mean, what would you be thinking if you're in Hannah's shoes in this moment? Well, Hannah shocks all of us in chapter two with her response. She worships. She sings as she pens words laden with truth and confidence. She sings to a God who has the power to reverse destinies, the God who works in ways we can never understand. He protects his people. She glorifies the Lord in his sovereignty for his holiness and his care for the lowly. When we think about the prayer Hannah prays in chapter 1 and the prayer Hannah prays here in chapter 2, we further demonstrates that Hannah has truly been transformed. She is a new person now from what she was in chapter 1. And the thought I really want to center our sermon around this morning uh, is literally verse 2. It's literally verse 2 of chapter 2. Rather than rewrite it into like a pithy statement, I thought I'd just make it the thesis of our sermon today. Verse 2, and it says this, There is none holy like the Lord. There is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. And I'd love to read that out loud together. All of us together. Can we do that? All of us together? Um, This could be a train wreck. We're going to do it right here. Here we go. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Plant that verse in your minds. Plant that verse in your hearts. Memorize it. Meditate upon it. Think about it this week and beyond. So I think this concept of God's holiness, 
You know, God being holy, his absolute moral perfection, his moral distance between us as created sinful beings and him, his holy otherness, if you want to use that phrase, W-H-O-L-L-Y, his holy otherness. And I truly believe this concept is central to everything we know about God. And yet, it's oftentimes the furthest thing we think about when we think about God. And what I mean by that is oftentimes when we think about God, we're quick to think of God's love or his mercy or his grace or his kindness or his justice or his wrath. All those things are true things about God. He's perfect in all those things. Yet we forget that what makes all of these attributes distinct is his holiness. It's his difference than us. You know, R.C. Sproul would argue, and I would agree, that the distinguishing mark of all of these attributes and characteristics of God is that they are all holy. All of them are. They're all set apart and distinct in ways that we can't even begin to comprehend in our minds. Holiness is the realm. It's like the home which all of these attributes live in. His love is set apart and distinct. His love is holy. His mercy is holy. His grace is holy. His kindness and his justice and his wrath are holy. And to quote one commentator I read, God is not only perfectly good, he is the source and standard of goodness. Yeah, but oftentimes, rather than seeing these attributes of God, these holy attributes as intrinsically true to him, as he being the standard giver of those attributes, and celebrating that, instead of doing that, we try to reduce down and make his holy attributes that are distinct and different than the attributes we possess because they're perfect and ours are not, we try to break them down into definitions of what good is of what holy is according to our own sensibilities and our own ideas. We find ourselves somewhat apologizing on behalf of God and how he acts sometimes in the scriptures. Well, what he meant really was this. You know, I'm sorry he said this, but what he really meant was this. Like God needs us to apologize for him. For example, when we read of God's love, instead of our primary approach being a recognition that he loves us on his own terms, that he defines what love is, and his love is holy, what we try to do is we try to impose upon uh, him our definitions and sensibilities of what love is, rather than be shaped and defined by how he defines what love is. We end up turning his holy love into an unholy idol, Or when we think about God's justice and his wrath, we try to impose our own ideas on who deserves justice and who deserves wrath rather than approach these two concepts on his holy terms, not ours. And we could do that with all of these attributes. We tend to taint the holiness of God with our own, own unholy desires and how we think he should act. And we conform him to our image rather than being conformed to his image in Christ Jesus. You know, it's Voltaire, he says, in the beginning, God created man in his own image. Man has been trying to repay the favor ever since. That's true. That's true. So we need the holy word of God to shape our thoughts of God. And we need the spirit to conform our thoughts of God to be more in step with the holy word of God. So in what ways, if verse 2 is our thesis, it kind of really sums up this whole chapter as we're going to see. In what ways is God holy? In what ways is he distinct from us? 
And how should we respond and not respond to his holiness? So let's start with verses one through 10 here. Verses one through 10, again, really honing in on verse two. Let's read it again. Verse two again, we can't read this enough. There is none holy like the Lord. There is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. If I could sum up verses one through 10 in one point, it would be this. Yahweh, God, is absolutely unique. He's absolutely unique. There is none holy like the Lord, none besides you. No rock like our God. He's absolutely unique. Well, in what ways is he unique? Well, first, he's unique in his being. He's unique in who he is. God is first in his being absolutely pure. He's absolutely pure. That's what holy means. He's perfectly right and good. He's untainted in his moral actions and character. We can never accuse God of any wrong. He is pure in every way. You know, when you see the nation of Israel approaching Mount Sinai in Exodus chapter 19, they just left Egypt. They're heading towards the promised land. They come to receive the law at Mount Sinai, Exodus 19. They are fearful to approach the Lord, right? See this cloud descend upon the mountain, thunder, lightning. You hear this trumpet sound from the skies. They are terrified. They don't even want to go near the mountain. And God's like, hey, don't come near the mountain because if you touch the mountain, I'm so holy, you're so unholy, you will die. And they're like, don't worry, we're not coming near that thing. Like, we're terrified. We're scared to death. It's because God of God's absolute moral purity, his holiness, that's why there was a curtain dividing the Ark of the Covenant from the rest of the temple. It's why there's a separation between sinful man without Christ and the presence of God even today because unholy creatures tainted by sin cannot even spend a millisecond in the presence of an absolutely pure, holy God without suffering consequences. Can't do it. Second way God is holy in his being, he is utterly set apart. He's set apart completely. This is intrinsic to God's character. He's set apart in two ways, really in the sense that there's no one like him. We just read that. He is in a category all his own. Creature and creator are completely divided in this realm. But secondly, he's set apart by necessity. And what I mean by that is he loves us, so he sets himself apart from us. Let me explain to you what I mean by that. It may sound like an oxymoron, for if God loves us, wouldn't he want to be in close proximity to us? But think about this for a second, in our own sin. You know, he sets himself apart from us until we have the appropriate mediator to approach him. Because he distances himself from us because we could not dwell in his presence without a mediator. We could not be there. And so he waits, sets up the conditions for us to begin to approach him and he approach us. So he intrinsically necessitates him being different than us because he's holy and we are unholy. It's kind of like when you isolated yourself during COVID, all right, <clears throat> some weird way. One, you're set apart in your own home because you're the only one with COVID. You are unique. You're utterly unique, right, in your own house. But at the same time, you set yourself apart because you love everybody else in your home, right? You don't want them to get covid so when they draw near to you or you draw near to them, there's a good chance they're going to get sick. So by necessity and out of your love for them, you separate yourself from them because you want them to be healthy. You want them to flourish and thrive, right? Now, God doesn't have COVID, right? And we don't. But 
We have to have the appropriate means in place to approach the Lord. He has to set that up because he's holy and we are unholy. And then third, God is unique in his being in that he is thoroughly incomparable. He's incomparable. There's no one like him. I mean, it's the whole point of the song, Behold Our God. You know, that song is literally a litany of questions, all with the answer, no one. Who has held the oceans in his hands? No one. Who's numbered every grain of sand? Well, no one, except God. So the response to God's holiness is, Behold our God, seated on his throne. Come, let us adore him. Behold our king. Nothing can compare. Come and let us adore him. There is no one like our God. Behold our God. Right? God is holy in his being. He's holy, but he's also holy in his actions. Now, Hannah, throughout these first 10 verses, she draws out a lot of these actions of the Lord. The first one she brings out here is that he knows all things. He knows all things. Verse 3, look at verse 3. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. No one is like the Lord. He knows everything in this universe. He knows every action you'll ever make. He'll know every action you don't make that you should have made. He knows all of your thoughts. He knows all of your emotions. He knows it all. And his holy knowledge sets him apart as a unique judge of all people because he's the only one with all the information, not us. Second, he initiates drastic reversals. He initiates drastic reversals. You know, this hymn, this prayer, it's filled with significant reversals. I mean, bows of the mighty are broken, feeble bind on strength. The full need bread. The hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has seven kids. The one who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills, the Lord brings to life. He brings down, he raises up. He makes the poor rich, he makes the rich poor. Lifts up the needy from the dust and ash heap, sits them with princes. I mean, the hymn highlights this God who reverses curses on behalf of his people. He takes those who are destitute now and seats them on thrones in glory. He takes whatever, whatever your lot is in life, he has the ability to take that and flip it on its head. Whatever your struggles are, whatever your status is, God can reverse those. He can switch those. He will eternally, in Christ, switch that forever. He initiates drastic reversals. Third, God is holy in his actions and that he preserves the faithful. He preserves the faithful. Verse 9, he'll guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness, for not by might shall a man prevail. This holy God uniquely works for his people's good. I and mean, we know that, right? We love Romans 8, 28, for all things work together for those who are called by God, uh, love God and are called according to his purpose. You know, God's preserving hand is on his people. He guards us. And this is Psalm 121, one through four, familiar psalm for us. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord who made the heaven and earth. 
He'll not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you does not slumber. Behold, he who keeps you, Israel, will neither slumber nor sleep. He preserves us. He guards us, the faithful ones, from harm, from danger. And going right along with that, number four, he cuts off the wicked. Cuts off the wicked. Saw that there at the end of verse nine, but going into verse 10, it says, the adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. God will not let any injustice slide under the radar. He will never forget any innocent person. A part of guarding his people is to eliminate any dangers they may face. And this is the response from God to all things unholy. He's against all things unholy. He's against them. His face is set against them. He breaks them to pieces, says here in verse 10. Some very vivid language. Everything unholy ceases to exist in the presence of a holy God. Which leads to the fifth way God is holy in his actions. He sovereignly rules over all the earth. Sovereignly rules over all the earth. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. This is verse 10, the end of verse 10. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He'll give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. The Lord is able to judge the ends of the earth for he rules over the ends of the earth and he made the ends of the earth. He is the only one who has the right to do so. And then Hannah here in this last line, she's given this prophetic word regarding a a means of his sovereign rule. He'll do it through a king. You know, there's no king yet in Israel. We haven't gone to chapter 8 and 9 yet. There's no king yet in Israel. But a king will come. Hannah speaks of a king coming who will represent God and exercise God's dominion and rule and reign on the earth. So by the end of Hannah's prayer, we're left with two things. We are left worshiping with her, and we're left waiting with her. Worshiping and waiting for God's holiness to appoint a king that will be holy like him, to lead and rule and reign over the earth. And verse 11 serves as this transition verse between the disposition and favor of God upon Samuel This boy who is in the backdrop, we'll get to that in a second, but in the backdrop, most of this text. And then verse 12 and and its depiction of Eli's corrupt sons. And for the remainder of this chapter, we're going to continue to see these drastic contrasts taking place here between the family of Elkanah and the family of Eli. And in bringing out these contrasts in light of God's unique holiness described in verses 1 through 10, the author for Samuel, he's given us a picture of what a holy God requires of us. And it's our second major point. Yahweh demands absolute obedience. Absolute obedience. Read with me, read with me, verses 12 through 17. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. The custom of the priests with the people was that When any man offered sacrifice, the priest's servant would come while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand, and he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. 
All that the fort brought up, the priest would take, care, would take for himself. This is what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Moreover, before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, Give meat for the priest to roast, for he'll not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. And if the man said to him, Let, let them burn the fat first and then take as much as you wish, he would say, No, you must give it now. And if not, I'll take it by force. Thus the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord, for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. Worthless men did not know the Lord. These are priests, all right? They're not like some randos off the streets. These are people leading worship in the community of Israel. But it highlights the first way that we respond to God's holiness, And it's this, God desires and demands intimacy over activity. Intimacy over activity. Hophni and Phinehas, these two sons of Eli, they remind us that it's possible to be busy doing all the things of God without ever knowing the God you're doing things for. You know, all throughout the scriptures and and all throughout churches today, we see that when leaders are corrupt, the entire people probably heads that direction too. You know, I feel like it's on a weekly basis and I hear, I hear another story of some pastor failing or some leader blowing it or becoming corrupted, abandoning his post for the siren song of pleasures in this world. You know, they substitute the activity of Christ for intimacy with Christ, right? They think that they're close to the Lord when they're just simply doing things from a spiritual distance. And we can all do that. I'm guilty of that at times. I know you're guilty of that at times. We can all busy ourselves with serving the church, with attending service every week, with attending our GCs, with spending time in our DNA groups, with giving consistently out of our paychecks, working our way through a Bible reading plan, you name it. And all those are good things. But we can do all those good things. We can do and do and do and do and never truly be with the Lord. Ever. There's a difference between knowing facts about our God and actually knowing our God. I mean, what does your, your prayer life look like? Do you find yourself talking to God consistently, sitting and mulling over his words to us in the Bible? Or are we so hurried and rushed that prayer, meditation just kind of gets pushed to the side? You know, I can do all the roles, fill all the responsibilities of a husband and a father and never truly never know my wife or children. Some of us have parents like that now. I can never spend time with them or listen to them or talk with them and yet meet every worldly demand a father or husband is supposed to have. I can provide for them. I can work a job. I can be respectable. I can go nine to five every day, show up at home, grab a meal, go to sleep, I can coach my kids t-ball games, I can do all kinds of stuff and never truly know my children or my wife. And oftentimes our lives as Christ followers are done more out of duty than delight. I had a pastor once tell me before I came to take this job, Austin, the best thing you can ever give your people is your own intimacy with Christ. And that's been my prayer 
haven't been perfect in it by any stretch of the imagination, but that's been my prayer. That's a good word. The best thing I can give you on a week-to-week basis is the overflow of my own personal intimacy with Jesus. You don't need the leftovers here. There's a difference between leftovers and overflow. And my desire is that when you're with me or around me, you can tell I've been with Christ and that he would use that to draw all of us closer to him, to know him, not just do things for him, but know him. We need intimacy over activity. Hophni and Phineas were real busy. They didn't know God. They didn't know him. Second, God demands and desires sacrifice over disregard. Sacrifice over disregard. You see this with what's happening here with Hophni and Phinehas and the sacrifices from the people. You know, God had made provision for the priests to have a portion of certain sacrifices, Leviticus 7, Deuteronomy 18, to provide for their physical needs. They would eat portions of the sacrifices that people would bring. But this was only after the Lord had received his portion. You know, the fat was intended to be burned off in the Lord's portion. The fat, the, the good part of the meat, for the Lord deserves that. He deserves the best of our offerings. But here the priests in 1 Samuel 2, they would send their servant to take their portions before all of that took place, before the Lord received his part of the portion. And then when these worshipers who obviously know this is wrong, they're telling the priests, hey, what you're doing is wrong. These worshipers here, the worshiper is showing that they have more regard for the law than Hophni and Phinehas, these priests even do. That the guys that are supposed to be leading out in Israel have no regard for the commands of the Lord. Then their congregants do. This narrative is intended to be shocking It's to show how even the priesthood did what was right in their own eyes. Judges 21, 25, where we started. Verse 17 says these priests, they would held the offering in contempt and their sin was great in the sight of the Lord. Sacrifice over disregard. Third, God demands virtue over vice. It's not rocket science here. God demands virtue over vice. If you skip down to verse 22, we're told in addition to all these other things that Eli's sons were sleeping with the volunteers, right? It's crazy. It's crazy what's going on. They're sleeping with these women at the tent, the entrance of the tent of meeting. They're taking advantage of these people, these women sexually. You know, in Israel on that day, a part of worshiping many other gods throughout the land was, was ritual prostitution, cult prostitution. We've heard of the god Baal, or Baal, however you want to read that in the scriptures. He was a fertility God. And to worship him, people would engage in sexual activity to celebrate fertility. The worship of Israel here resembles much of this Canaanite religion at this point in their history. And Eli, in verses 23 and 24, he rebukes them. The sons, he rebukes them. And it's a pretty strong rebuke if you read it, but at the same time, he doesn't remove them. He leaves them there to continue to lead the people. Lead the people into this false worship. 
You know, more often than not in the history of the church, two things have brought down leaders and churches more than any other vices, money and sex. Misuse or tampering with finances, sexual infidelity, it's a tale as old as time. It's the same thing here. Taking the sacrifices, sleeping around. And when these things are present in local churches, the results are the same as here in verse 24, that the news spreads abroad. Reproach is brought upon the holy name of God through unholy people. He is made a mockery of because those that say they worship and love him continue to put him in a state of disregard. Our, my, our and my, all of us in this room, our sinful actions communicate something to those around us. When we choose vice over virtue, when we act out of step with the gospel, it doesn't just affect us. It doesn't just affect me. My sin does not just affect me. It affects all of us, and it affects all the people out there that hear about it. And it brings reproach upon the name of God that we say we value and we follow and we love. And then fourth, fourth, God demands faithfulness over falseness. Faithfulness over falseness. You know, throughout this ongoing corruption, you have these glimpses of this boy, Samuel. He's quiet. He's kind of in the backdrop to serve as a contrast to Eli's family. You know, Hophni and Phinehas are taking sacrifices in verses 12 through 17 when the scene then flashes in verse 18 to Samuel. You see this young boy in the garments of a priest, the linen ephod he's wearing, his garments of a priest, and he's being visited by his mom on an annual basis. And the language in verses 18 through 21, it just, it sounds so innocent. You know, Hannah would bring him a little robe each year. I mean, can you imagine that? Like, your mom bringing a little robe to this, this kid she dropped off that he's serving in the temple as a priest alongside these corrupt guys. and I'm sure his mom and Elkanah knew the stories of Hophni and Phinehas. You're leaving him with these guys to do the work of a priest? But she brings in this little robe, and it's this language of telling the story of these two grown corrupt men, really three grown corrupt men, leading Israel astray, and then this innocent little boy, in contrast, growing and maturing under the watchful eyes of the Lord in the backdrop. You see it again in verses 22 to 25. You have Eli's rebuke of his son sleeping with the temple volunteers juxtaposed with verse 26. Now the boy Samuel continued to grow in both stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. That's literally word for word the phrase described of Jesus in Luke 2.52. Samuel again quietly unpretentiously being prepared by the Lord in the background to be used by him in mighty ways. Samuel's being internally changed before he is given the tasks that lay ahead of him in the history of Israel. You know, maybe you're familiar with the um, famous, infamous uh, podcast, The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill, aired a couple of years ago. If you haven't listened to it, it's a it's a cautionary tale, um, and it's the story of God's grace, his mercy, in spite of the sins of man. But it tells a story of former Marshall Church in Seattle, Washington, and their pastor, Mark Driscoll, 
Long story short, Driscoll had this meteoric rise to like pastoral stardom, you know, if you want to call it that, and then a pretty epic catastrophic fall in, that came out all in 2014. And uh, he had a moral failing in 2014, and within months, every church, Mars Hill campus, had closed their doors, shut their doors. And early on in that podcast, they interview a guy named Ed Stetzer. Dr. Ed Stetzer may be familiar with him. He's a researcher, church consultant. He's been a professor at various places. He's worked for Lifeway. He's done a lot of things. But he made a comment that has haunted me for a while. And he said, there are many, it's a quote, there are many young pastors whose ability rose them to prominence before their character was ready for it. There are many young pastors whose ability rose them to prominence before their character was ready for it. The character could not undergird their influence and their power, and they failed. All throughout this text, we are reminded that God is preparing Samuel in the shadows of this narrative. That although he isn't on the forefront of leading the ministry here, that the Lord is shaping him molding him into a future faithful prophet in Israel. You know, it's better to be formed in the shadows than fall in the light, church. It's in the quiet places in our days. It's the quiet places in our weeks where the Lord forms us and shapes us. Are you making time for those quiet places in your own life? to be forged into faithful followers of Jesus? Or is it continued activity for God with very little intimacy with God? You know, it's easy to look at these previous four things I just said and the consistent and constant demand for holiness and obedience laid out in the Bible and just be utterly dejected and overwhelmed when we look at it. Like, who can do this? Like, who can be absolutely obedient? Who can be as holy as God is holy? Leviticus 11.44 and 1 Peter chapter 1, be holy as I am holy. Like, who can stand under that kind of scrutiny? And that's the point. You can't. None of us can. It's intended to drive you to despair and then fall upon the mercy and the grace of the one who can in Christ. Yahweh is not only utterly unique, that's our first point. He not only demands absolute obedience, that's our second point. But third and lastly, he provides necessary mediation. He provides the necessary mediation. You know, verses 27 to 36, this unnamed man of God comes to prophesy a coming day of destruction on the house of Eli. Because of their great sin, they're going to be removed from the priesthood. Not simply Eli but his son and his sons, but every descendant of Eli. There will not be a perpetual service to the Lord in the temple from Eli and his family. But in the midst of the curse, there's this glimmer of hope. I want you to read with me verse 35. God is speaking through this unnamed man of God, which I think we all in our lives have unnamed men and women of God who will never be remembered in the annals of history, but we know them for calling us out our junk. But God is speaking through this unnamed man of God, verse 35, and he says, and I'll raise up for myself a faithful priest 
who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. I'll build him a sure house. He shall go in and out before my anointed forever. Now, part of the work of a priest was to mediate, to intercede between God and the people. You know, Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas throughout this entire chapter have proven themselves unfit to stand between a holy God and an unholy people. And the implicit question undergirding this entire chapter is if the priests are corrupt and wicked, who can stand in the gap between a holy God and unholy people? Who can mediate here when the entire system and its officials are corrupt? Who can do it? And God, once again, comes to our rescue and he says, I can he promises to raise up a priest who will do all that God desires. A priest who will proclaim the holiness of his God and then demonstrate absolute obedience and holiness himself. And this priest will be established as a priest for all of eternity. And we have this priest in Jesus. You know, as the sacrifice, Jesus gave all of himself for our atonement. Jesus wasn't a priest only giving God the leftovers. He gave God the ultimate sacrifice, namely himself, in its fullness. Hebrews 7, 26 and 27 says, For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, everything we need in a priest, all those things, and exalted above the heavens, he has no need like other high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he, Jesus, did this once for all when he offered up himself. No sacrifice is left to be made. No atonement left to be made. No forgiveness left to be given. It's all been done in Christ. And then second, as the priest, Jesus ardently intercedes for his people. Hebrews 7, again, 23 through 25, the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he, Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. Why? because he always lives to make intercession for them. The situation has to be right for us, an unholy people, to approach a holy God. We need the right mediator, and we have it in Jesus. A holy son, at this very moment, a holy son is praying to his holy father on behalf of an unholy, now made holy in Christ people for the process, for the sake of making us more holy. We've been set apart for a purpose, church. We are holy in that sense. But Christ is praying that through the spirit for us right now, that we are made more and more holy in our character and our conduct and our thoughts and our deeds for his glory. There is none holy like the Lord. There's none besides you. There is no rock like our God. The ways he chooses to act are so different than our ways. And yet he has called us his people. 
pray together, church. Father, I... Thank you for providing Christ as our high priest. There is not a leader of any church in this world that has ever existed that is not a flawed human being. So you gave us an unflawed human being to fall upon when we fail. We thank you for Christ. We thank you, Lord, that you are holy. Yet even in your holiness, you have set apart a holy people. Because of Jesus, you filled us up with your holy presence and the Holy Spirit who transforms us and draws us near as even you draw near to us. Father, may we seek to be holy in our conduct, in our thoughts, in our lives, in our worship. May we desire intimacy with you more than activity for you. And give us the wisdom and discernment to know the difference between activity and intimacy. We love you, Lord. We thank Jesus for praying for us even now remembering us before the throne of our God. And his ministry picks up even more. We thank you, Lord, that his ministry picks up even more in those moments where we fail, where we need an intercessor, where we need a mediator even more. Thank you, Lord, that you are not ashamed to call us your people. May we not be ashamed to call, us, call you our God. I pray these things in Christ's name, amen.